When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. I'm the author of How to Be a Grown-Up, The Sisterhood, and my very first novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls, is coming out on the 11th of February 2021. There's a limited number of special signed editions available from Waterstones for Your Book listeners to pre-order. And huge, huge thanks to everyone who has already pre-ordered. It really is the very best way to support the podcast. Also, we'd like to tell you that we're supporting Books to Nourish to raise money for Fair Share. It's a very exciting auction item. You can bid for a chance to appear as a guest on the podcast. I will interview the winning bidder or the person of their choice, either in their home, um, if you're in the UK, or via Zoom. Um, that's available internationally. That's about their books and bookshelves, their lives as a reader and the books they love. And if the guest is UK-based, we'll also be sending them a bundle of our very favourite books from the Your Book Proof Pile. The episode will be shared on all major podcast platforms with the Your Book listeners. For more information, visit bookstonourish.wordpress.com and check out at YBooked on Twitter and Instagram for information about how to bid. And the auction closes at 8pm on Sunday, November 22nd. Now, on to today's guest... We're absolutely honoured to share a conversation with you with the writer Nikita Lulwani, booker nominee and winner of the Desmond Elliott Prize for her debut, Gifted. She donated her £10,000 prize to the human rights organisation Liberty. She's judged the Orwell Prize, she's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and her excellent latest book, You People, the story of a restaurant, two runaways and a charismatic figure taking the law into his own hands. We talked about Tessa Hadley, The Borrowers, Anita Bruckner and The Virtue of Nosiness. I just wanted to jump in and tell you how much I loved you people and I was so moved by it. And it wasn't always easy to read, but it was such a a powerful read and such a compelling thing to stay with. And I wanted to ask you about um, Nia and her relationship with reading. And I know it's lazy to assume that there's much of a a character sort of writer in the mix especially because you know this is um one of many novels but I was wondering that love of books that Nia had felt very personal and I wonder if any of that did come from you yeah I, I definitely think I gave the love of the library and its democratic approach to discovering fiction to Nia so she gets everything she can sort of squeezes all the juice out of the local library and it means that she can wander up and down um 
different aisles, pick a book off the aisle, decide whether or not it's for her and put it back. And that's a kind of freedom that I enjoyed as a kid in the local library. So it meant that you chance upon really odd things that weren't curated for you and that you had this sort of illusion of being able to control your own reading fate. And I liked that a lot as a child. Um, my dad also used to do things like buy a shelf of random books from the charity shop and just hope for the best. A whole shelf? Yeah, because um, in the in Cardiff, uh, near, near us, there was a charity shop where they'd suddenly just put everything that they were getting rid of on one shelf and it wouldn't just be a couple of quid. And so it, that lucky dip aspect to reading is something that I think, you know, I got from that approach. And Nia's got that, but it also means that as she grows in the novel, in New People, as a character, she believes that if you read the right things, can teach yourself that you can, uh, so long as you know how to read, I guess, you can find what interests you and pursue yourself down, pursue ever-increasing avenues of nerddom. And I think I've probably I related to her in that way. So what were those first books that you, you know, you got out of the library Lucky Dip and on those shelves? Can you remember anything that really, really struck you when you found it? Well, the different books were different phases. So I think on the shelves, the books that stood out were, were the were when I was really young. I was thinking about this this morning, actually. There were books like The Borrowers by Mary Norton and also Stick of the Dump, um, which I, I saw them as quite connected. They're both about child autonomy in an adult world um, they're scavenging things from an adult world from an adult life and trying to build a way through a child's universe and in the borrowers the fact that they lived underneath the floorboards just seems so incredible to me in terms of again that freedom of running around and pretending to be adult but also um, the resonance there was this very sinister resonance um, there's a gas that you know there's a rat catcher who turns up to gas them um, and it's got the resonance of wartime and when it was written um, and Mary Norton's interests. And I think that all of that darkness on the edge was very interesting to me. I also was reading at that time in a way where I was thinking, what's the real world? Is the real world the one that I inhabit under the floorboards, essentially? Or is the real world this sort of adult strange land that I go about? And I, I remember I used to sort of reenact Stig of the Dump in the woodland near our house in Cardiff okay. and pretend to be Stig and that kind of thing. Um, so those two books stood out in really early, in the early reading when you're first getting into chapter books. Um, but in the library, I've got a very strong memory of a book that I would just return to again and again, and that was Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. Because when I first took it off the shelves, I didn't really understand it. And then I began the process of trying to understand it. Because I think that's so interesting that you found it and that relationship wasn't easy or immediate, but you kept persevering with it. What was it about the book that kept drawing you back and made you want to kind of solve the puzzle? Well, again, I think I approached it. I was in my sort of early to mid-teens and I approached it as though it was a true story, even though it's full of magical realism and um, people who stir disappointment into chilli ch chili pickles. It was also very rude and that was appealing. Um, <laughs> but it was this sort of grandiloquent sense that you could... Um, you could go around the houses, you know, in this very circumlutary way, and circumlutary way, and you you would find a greater truth by not accessing it directly. And I think that that appealed to me a lot. So I understood that in each reading I might glean something else. There was also the kind of dance with the English language, um, what would later be called the sort of chutnification of the language, 
and I could speak Hindi and as a child and I was sort of very excited by that I was sort of watching a lot of Bollywood films and absorbing sort of street but Hindi and I saw it appear in these in this book that tried to explain so much that I was trying to understand about my own history the partition of India being a refugee the British rule it, it was it was astounding really but it's interesting that books that can influence you when you're very young don't always stay as the ones that influence you when you start writing, I think. It was also very funny, and I think that that meant that I kept going back for the out-and-out kind of absurdity of it. The idea that comedy and tragedy are very closely aligned, and you could be laughing one minute, but, it, you know, what if all this, the laughter was tears? I think that's huge for any reader or writer, that moment when you encounter something and you realise something can be devastating and tragic and profound and challenging and painful but also hilarious that humor seems so forbidden more than I think anything else in a book because I think we present reading as such a serious thing and when you're laughing and you're laughing at something especially that feels quite adult and almost not obscure in the sense of not available obviously you know some history books quite sort of quite known but obscure in that it's meaning and the story doesn't reveal itself straight away I imagine that's just you know like fireworks going off in the brain yeah I think that humor can be this way in which things can escalate so that there can be like you say an explosion but it can also make something feel safer um, if there's humor when something's very dark or very bleak or very uh, morally ambigu ambiguous which is something that I as I got older I was much more interested in um what are the boundaries of acceptability? I think all of that's in Midnight's Children. On one level, it's sort of, you know, what can I get away with? What can I get away with as a writer? What can I get away with as somebody from the subcontinent? What can I get away with as a person who's sort of playing with various genres at once? And that sort of audacious approach, I guess, was quite thrilling too when I was reading it. But mainly what it did was sort of set me off on a journey of reading other writers from the Indians, from from India, from Pakistan, from Bangladesh, and that kind of thing, and sort of make me realise that it was possible to maybe write, because there weren't that many around when I first discovered it. So where did you go after Rushdie? Who did he lead you to? As it went on, I was very keen on a, an Indian writer who was writing in America called Parati Mukherjee. She wrote a book called Wife, which was about the sort of expectations around femaleness at that time. Um, I can't remember when it was written, but I think, I think it's in the 80s, if, or if not the late 70s. Is it a novel? It's a novel, yeah. And I found it very um, acerbic and pointed, and it was the opposite of Rushdie. It was just so sharp, and it had a very bleak sort of melancholy to it, but it also had sort of Dorothy Parker levels of kind of one-liner um, achievement. <laughs> so I admired that a lot, when you can say a lot in one line, and you just find yourself reading it and rereading it over and over again. So maybe I went from one extreme to another. I think it's interesting that the books that we love when we're young, I was thinking about The Borrowers especially and how much I loved that book. And it's such an immediate world, but it's sort of, it's a little bit black and white in that we know the borrowers are borrowing. They're not stealing. That is made very clear. We know the rat catcher is bad and we know that Pod and Arietti and Homily are good and we root for them. But then as you say that ambiguity comes up but also I think elsewhere in novels this idea that adults can be unhappy 
and they stay unhappy. And in lots of novels, that that unhappiness is never really resolved. And often, sometimes it's because people are going through great hardship and pain, and sometimes it's just a feeling, and that that's permitted. I remember finding that quite exciting and terrifying. Yeah, that uh, that, that makes me think of another book that later on, when I was studying single lines. Um, in pursuit of the single line, I was looking at a book of adult unhappiness, which was Light Years by James Salter. I was sort of fascinated by, there's a sort of mesmerising kind of adherence to trying to understand women, which often veers into being just out and out misogyny. And I found that quite mesmerising. You know, he'd say things like, um, she was like a beautiful dinner left out overnight. And I would just look at that for ages and think, is that my fate as a person of the female sex? You know, or, or other lines like, um, you know, when she laughed, it was like applause. And it's just so short and it says so much. And the whole book is about the difference between public and private in a marriage and what a public sort of um, on paper days of um, pleasant happenings, you know, life is just meals, another line from Salter, what, what they can look like and then what they can be like if you're inside them experiencing and how the two people in a marriage will experience the marriage differently. And that idea that no one's right and no one's wrong in that interpersonal politic that constitutes a relationship. I remember that was very interesting to me in that book. That sounds brilliant. Oh, Nikita, I'm gutted because I have a horrible feeling that I tried, I struggled a bit with a sport in a pastime. And as you said, I found that kind of cleverness at the expense of misogyny a little hard going. And I think I might have um, given away or got rid of a copy of Light Years. I'm like, damn, <laughs> I'm going to have to retrieve that from someone. I think you have to be in the right mood, though, for it. I think it can send you into despair if you're in the wrong mood, probably, um, reading Light Years. So uh, treat with caution. Do you know James Salter's book that is called Life is Meals? I believe he wrote with his wife. Yes, okay. I've got that. Yeah, I've got that book. It's great. It's got the same sort of precision and adherence to... Um, the idea that, you know, it, it's, it's, each recipe is a bit like one of his perfect paragraphs. I mean, I sort of looked at it and thought there's no need to ever try and attempt one of these recipes. <laughs> <laughs> Reading them is enough. And then again, in small doses, again. <laughs> but I was quite surprised. I thought the concept and the execution were unexpectedly sort of bittersweet, but sweet and warm and love-filled. There was more sort of, I don't think this is even a word, like tactility. Yeah, it's a little more generous. There's a little more optimism in that book. It's interesting that that happens through the avenue of food and of what those what like what those meals mean. It doesn't have the inward sort of slightly macho narcissism that you see in books like The Hunters and Sport in a Pastime. And it's more outward looking, strangely, isn't it? That book, hmm. um, a bit like the short stories. The short stories are often they're very compact and enviably economic in scale like the book last night which is short stories of his um and you think well in these four pages how can so much have happened when he's not really every line is a bit like a lyric from a song it's not there's not fancy language often you're not seeing a lot of multisyllabic words yes he does have those moments where it, there is some sort of hope on the horizon uh, which other short story writers do you love or hate, if there are any. I think I, ret I return to Doris Lessing a lot. I prefer her short stories to the novels. Um, and she's quite a big writer for me, Doris Lessing. Maeve Brennan, Irish short story writer living as an emigre in New York. And Maeve, Maeve is Galant, French-Canadian, also an emigre, writing about being out of place um, and both revelling in 
the city around them, Paris or London, but also saying, you know, you made me a foreigner. It wasn't me that used that name for myself. Or there's a point where Mavis Gallant is mistaken for being Algerian in Paris and she's suddenly on the receiving end of liberal kindness and she calls it the, that awful sugar. I, I like those three writers and then sort of later on Tessa Hadley, sort of in the same realm, I would say, Grace Paley. So female short story writers mainly who are trying to locate something in the interpersonal, in the you know interstitial elements of kind of trying to navigate either the domestic life or life out in the world. With Doris Lessing, I kind of like the anger and the politics and, and I'm really interested in the stuff, the sort of self-loathing stuff she writes in South Africa in winter in July and how kind of dirty it feels and how it's not very um, kind of um, seemly. It's unseemly. I quite like that in Lessing. I think when I was about 16, maybe, I read Martha Quest, and I can't remember the novel that comes after it, but really feeling quite sort of like viscerally, I guess. And again, I think, you know, Martha being someone who had everything and was sort of allowed her unhappiness, or, well, she wasn't, you know, because of, you know, that time and what was expected of her, but the sort of the, the tension with her and her mother and, you know, things that sort of seemed unspoken and unlikely to resolve themselves. But I've never read Lessing's short stories and I would love to. Um, but I was reading a lot of um, Tessa Hadley this summer. She was one of my favourite lockdown writers and the the precision of bad dreams. And what I love so hard about Tessa Hadley is that she is so, she's a big, small writer. You know, it's all so slight and yet so enormous and the do you remember I don't know if I can't remember what it's called but there's a story she's written about I believe the protagonist is a youngish woman and she's house sitting and there's for a much sort of more glamorous sort of older together woman and I think she finds loads of diaries from her ex-lover and the ex eventually turns up I love that sort of the the prying that you get to do with her and that it is unusually satisfying (laughs) Yeah, and in that story, and also with several Tessa Hadley stories, the ending is the ending is incredibly important. I think I often pore over the ending to see what the moral compass of the story is, or what the direction of the story is, or what did it all mean? Um, you know, um, <laughs> you, you've got this feeling under the skin, which um, tells you that it's it, there's not a single direct arrow of meaning. It's a it's a mood. It's an answer to um, trying to put down a mood that can last a lifetime in its implications or that can be the response to an event. But it's not using sort of traditional plot techniques of event, action and reaction, um, keeping things moving in the way that you might expect. I think that's the case in the books as well. Late in the day, the most recent novel is really stunning. And in that, you're following um, two couples over many years. In doing that, it's a sort of excavation of class, of the dynamics between um, platonic, romantic, filial love. But all of it is done through this... She establishes the mood really early on, and she lets it sit under the skin. And I think when I was thinking, when I was reading Lace in the Day, I was thinking about that idea that, you know, you are just confident that there's a truth in the book as you are with her short stories. You're confident that there's a truth 
and that real life can be quite treacherous and difficult in terms of navigating the truth. You don't always know what the truth is in any given exchange. But when you're reading a Tessa Hadley book, there's this idea that there's this confidence that the truth is there. It's not going to be spoken, but it's for you to find. It's for you to uncover. So you're active, which I also quite like. I agree. And I think confidence is absolutely the word that no matter how, even though it's not something that you you know, necessarily see at all in her characters, there's a real, I think, a rhythm and an elegance and a deafness to there's like there is a core you know that is granite and marble under the book that you can rest on as a reader granite and marble brilliant way of putting it yeah oh my gosh um (laughs) i wanted to ask you whether you'd read that book uh monogamy by sue miller i haven't read it. it no it's very much some sort of thing i love and i thought about it i guess talking about late in the day and uh light years it's about the slow unexpected end of a marriage I love the nuance of it so much and the way she really captures better than anyone I've ever read the way that love can be violent and love can be sentimental and the way that in a relationship you fall in and out of love and you've got this sort of Russian doll set of relationships within anything and that monogamy is in so many ways such a a shit way of having a go but it's all we've got and it's the best that we've really come up with so far but it reminded me of a lot of another book that I read earlier in the year that might have been the first book to win the women's prize Larry's Party by Carol Shields oh right yeah I I, I remember that I think it's one of I read it a long time ago it's weird because it's very again it's the kind of book where like if someone says you know this book is about you know the the violent thatching industry in the 19th century and loads of things happen. There are hurricanes. I'm like, oh, no, thank you. Not for me. This is like, there's a man and he gets married and he does some work and he gets married to someone else. Is that the one where he's a radio presenter? Larry is a, a florist and then becomes a very successful landscape gardener. That's it. Got it. Yeah, I remember it now. I think a lot about how Carol Shields wrote Larry I never didn't believe him I never thought like oh a man wouldn't do that and there was no you know James Saltery or or, let's be real James Salter is far from the only offender you know there was no like he looked in the mirror at his enormous penis (laughs) or any of the things we have to suffer through yeah that that idea of um that that's the idea of confidence that you're talking about and walking in other people's shoes I was really struck by that. You just reminded me of it. It's a completely different book and it's a completely different genre, but it's just, a, I was sent a proof of um, The Good Girls by writer Sonia Falero. It's a true crime story set in um, a village in India where two young girls are discovered hanging from a tree. And it's got something of the Truman Capote um, in Cold Blood about it, but also Janet Malcolm, the journalist and the murderer, because it's about bias and how we read things and how we bring our own inherent bias to reading and what Falero does which is sort of incredibly compelling is she sort of inhabits each of the characters in the village really well and there's not a sense that um, it's anything other than sort of beautifully observed or you believe every time she inhabits whether it's the district police officer or an uncle of one of the girls or the women who make a sh- who who gather around the tree where they're hanging and make a shield because they want it to be visible and not to be forgotten. They make a human shield around the tree so that it will be noticed. Um, every time she goes into someone's head, 
there's this sense that it's it's fine to do that and we're sort of at a point where you wonder whether you're allowed to or there's a lot of discussion or there's a lot of debate about authenticity in terms of you know wh whose voice are you allowed to use you know as a writer what's the writerly voice is there an omni omnipotent sort of writerly voice or are we sort of forming acts of ventriloquism um but this is so elegantly done that that question sort of disappears i think it's interesting that idea of, of whether or not you're doing it if you forget the question if you forget the fact that it's being written then basically job done i think that's so interesting and i'm so glad that you brought that up because i do think that now now more than ever we're very very aware I guess of sort of you know this idea of kind of identity and, and who is the writer and who may we speak for yeah it's very complicated Sadie Smith's very good on this and I've just been reading Tiny Kade Bambara short stories which are written in this sort of howl of direct passionate sort of magic because they were mentioned in intimations the set of essays that um, Smith did recently. So the question is complicated because you feel that Bambara is the only person who should be writing that. And it does feel like a document of a time. It feels like a document of different forms of racism and sexism and sort of interference. And it would be difficult to imagine that that would have the same power if it was written by someone else. So the question is, is ongoing, I guess. Because there's the other, I guess, idea, isn't it, that you sort of want to write about the world that we we see and, and live in and that the narrowness of a writer's experience, I guess, if they're, to a point, if they're writing books that are that narrow, it's sort of a, a failure of imagination and, and compassion and empathy and all the rest of it. But um, it's interesting because I was thinking when I read Intimations how I do not want to read any books like reflections of this time and how awful it is and how we're coping and how we're not coping. And Zadie Smith is the exception to that. And the reason I've always loved her and always come back to her is at a time when there's lots of passion and anger, that she is so calm and sober and somehow able to, you know, get the essence of attention without bringing not just not bringing her own personal energy to the tension, but not being swayed by the big swirl of personal energies in the mix. Yeah, and yet she's incredibly sort of diligent in terms of being personal, isn't she? And putting, making herself yeah. culpable. That is a truly great way of putting it. That is so resonant. I really love that. That's, that sort of culpability... But a, a quite a different writer who you've made me think of, though, in the same way of sort of capturing a sense of the world through her essays, but doing it, in her case, through the body, is Sinead Gleeson, whose essay yes! Constellations I've read recently. Former guest of the podcast. We love Sinead. Oh, really? Yeah, I really love those. Just there's something fearless about them in the most obvious sense, because she's fearlessly sort of documenting her travails and her illness. But you get the sense that she's striving for honesty in the way that Smith is. You know, above all else, be honest. Don't try and sort of just come across. If you're going to put yourself in the spotlight of, um, you know, as the, as the I who's going around narrating, 
these observations on the world, then try and present that eye, warts and all. Try and present that eye that's carving out some kind of pattern in this stone um, as somebody who is as flawed as the reader. I like that. There is. I think you're so right. There's something really in the bones, in all of our bones, about constellations. And it never, ever presents itself as sort of any bids for, for sympathy. And my goodness, you know, the the life she sort of lived and, and what happened to her. I love that it, it's forensic and yet so, so lively and vivid. And weirdly, I keep talking about this book on the podcast because I just read it. It was one of those books where people sort of kept recommending it. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I think that'll be a, a charming, funny, light, quite a quick read. I'll just get to it. And I was absolutely floored by it and arrested by it. Um, Patrick Frains, um, OK, let's do your stupid idea. Did it make you laugh at all or did it just... Oh, it did, it did, it really did. And I think the the saddest, loveliest bits, because he talks about grief as well and beloved friends who have died. And what's, I think, really smart about the book is the way those friends, you know, kind of punctuate things like ghosts and you know you know they have died and you know Patrick is grieving them. But then he goes back to a holiday they had or a band they were in or something sort of mad that happened. And again, it's that amazing use of humour where it almost it allows you to breathe through the grief that you're going through with him but yeah it is also extremely funny that's interesting I think in the fictional worlds of family family life the books that appeal to me that have humour in them but also grief are World According to Garp by John Irving and White Noise by Don DeLillo I'm really glad you mentioned John Irving because I know that you've um, you know talked about him on Backlisted Oh, yes. At great length. Hello, Backlisted. <laughs> Hi, Backlisted. Beloved Backlisted. A much more successful podcast, Big Brother. <laughs> but in both of those, there's a sense that the family structure is, is not nuclear in the way that we're led to believe. And that there is, every time there's a false ending, you think that it's over and that you've gone as far as you can in the human story and in the parenting as well in the aspects of parenting. And then there's a twist and a turn and a somersault and a belly flop and sometimes tragedy and horror. Um, and, and there's a new chapter. And I think that that really appeals to me when it comes to narratives about parenting. But on the other side, I really like Tilly Olsen, who is a sh- was a sh- short stories and who wrote on motherhood. And she's got a short story, which is called I Stand Here Ironing, which is all about that identity fracture that takes place in mothering but it's done in this very practical no-nonsense way and it's sort of an anger at having to do the ironing whilst having to work and also having to parent and this sense of continual failure when it comes to parenting especially parenting a daughter um, and all of the myriad sort of mirrors that appear the hall of mirrors that it is for a mother to parent a daughter I think it's kind of perfectly captured in that short story. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. 
and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Nikita soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, A Way of Life Like Any Other by Darcy O'Brien. Our hero, the child of two movie stars, is growing up a little too fast in 50s Hollywood, and it's not too long before the wheels come off his fabulous life, and booze, sex, gambling, Russian lovers and bad art conspire to ruin everything, hilariously. It's darkly funny, propulsive, gulpable, take-no-prisoners prose. It's lots of fun. A Way of Life Like Any Other by Darcy O'Brien is published by New York Review Books. Now, back to Nikita. Are there any fictional families that you would have liked to have grown up in? Oh, wow. I guess it's all, I mean, I guess you would have that thought when you were really young. And so it was probably, oddly enough, it was, um, it would have been in Narnia, probably. (laughs) Even though their parents aren't around. And I don't know what that tells you about the family that I'd like to grow up in. But Narnia and Swallows and Amazon, those peculiar, old-fashioned even when I was reading them in their kind of tone, really, but in their idea that the, that children could be independent of their parents. All, the, all of the boarding school sagas, those, the, those are the ones that I was drawn to. But I see them as a family because it was siblings, but I think I craved having a sibling for a long time because my brother was born eight years after me. So I, I remember I used to ask for a sibling for a long time. So maybe that's why I think of something like the Narnia a lot, even though, you know, later on I would come to see it as sort of, the Crusades. Um, at the time of reading, they seem not violent at all. <laughs> What's so interesting about all of those choices, it's that sort of belonging in a very, very complete, distinct universe, I suppose, that I know, you know, you can, at the beginning at least, sort of, there's a bit of going in and out of the wardrobe, but once you're in, you're in. And I think that when we're children, maybe we have so much focus maybe we sort of resent the the compartmentalizing of our lives that we just want to sort of go somewhere a bit and you're always being kind of you know moved I remember feeling that about you know certainly Mallory Towers which I think had I gone to a boarding school especially one where I was expected to go into an unheated pool once a week I would have been miserable and there's lots of very weird weird Enid Lighton values and dubious things in that story but for example the enchanted wood is a kind of family Moonface and saucepan mm. that's a family that you so you leave the sort of biological blood relatives and you go and enter a different sort of family on a tree that ascends into the heavens 
at night when everyone's asleep. What could be better than that? And there's something really elastic, I think, about the magic faraway tree and, you know, Moonface and Saucepan Men and all of those people, but just being very sort of accepting of and embracing of those kids that it was it did seem like a place where you could go and be be accepted and loved because as long as you as long as you did no harm you know you could be wanted in that world yeah I read a book uh, a couple of years ago which is quite old um by Vivek Schanberg it's called Kacher Kacher and it's about a joint family who are living in close proximity and it's it's sort of it's 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 got a uh, it feels very like a sort of Chekhov um, short story. It's a novella. It's called Kacher Gocher, and it's all about how this extended family. So um, when the son of the two parents gets married, he brings home a wife. The sister's still living there, um, and how as money enters the family realm in this extended sort of all the branches keep extending in this family. How the family slowly implodes with these very small sort of poisonous elements that start happening, mistrust being this corrosive force in the family. When I was reading that, I, I thought I thought a lot about the fact that I used to go to India a lot um, when I was growing up, every two years, and I, I guess I wanted to be part of that extended family. My extended family was scattered all over North India. And my mum was from a family of eight siblings, and my dad from, had lots of siblings too. And... I'd go from Cardiff to India and imagine that it would be so great to know exactly who you were and to be part of this almost fictional family to me. They were not fictional. They were real people. They were close cousins and aunties and uncles. But, you know, some of the, some of those elements of aspiration dripped their way into my first book for definite, wanting to be part of those kinds of extended families where you had cousins living in the same country who, you both, who were both um, familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. There's a book that I think I read a proof of it, and it might be out now or it might be out next week. Uh, it's called You Exist Too Much uh, by Zaina Arafat. I don't know if you've come across that. but No, I haven't. I mean, I think it's a kind of autofiction, and it's very focused on sort of identity. And, you know, she talks about being her sexuality, but also being... Palestinian American and her very complicated, intense, quite toxic relationship with her mother and never really knowing who to be or who to belong to. But she writes really beautifully about spending summers with her cousins and always, you know, like looking forward to it and longing for it and being desperate to be there. And when she was there with them, always feeling a little bit excluded and always hoping, you know, to sort of to fit in more. Oh, that's interesting. I should check that out. It's got. It's a great title. You exist too much. It is very resonant, isn't it? That sense of sort of having too many feelings. All of my favourite heroines, I think, have that sort of that too much quality. Yeah, that's true. That exuberance, or yeah, you're just a bit too much. Yeah, I was reading a, actually a Muriel Spark book the other day, in which she says she's got a great line about that. She says, "If you, if you're capable, tone it down." because otherwise you'll be too much. Something along the lines of what you're saying. She's just very kind of definite about it. You know, if you're best, it's just a kind of idea that, I think it was a far cry from Kensington. That was the book. This idea that if you're bursting at the seams, um, and, the, and the character also has issues with weight and 
whether or not, you know, the fact that everyone dares to and constantly comments on her weight and what she's eating. But it, she's talking about capability and being capable and how it can get you into all kinds of sticky situations. Very ahead of its time, I think. You know, she's got a sort of multicultural mix going on in Kensington and it's all sort of very done in this sort of very workaday manner, sort of brisk, no nonsense, let's get on with it. And everyone's living alongside each other and rubbing up against each other. Um, and what does it all mean? And she's quite interesting on what connects us across different cultural kind of boundaries, you know, is being female and vulnerable and trying to make your way and be financially independent. Is that something that can connect you, even if you're from different countries in London, which can be a bit inhospitable, but also just sort of glorious? And not entirely the same, but I just read, might be called Imaginative Experience, Mary Wesley. And it's very, I mean, I think she is due a uh, renaissance or something. And everyone knows the chamomile lawn and everyone knows about Jennifer Ill in the bath. But yeah, she is prolific and so funny and a little bit shocking and provocative. And sometimes we're like maybe the writer who is the kindest and cruelest at once. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's a real art to do that with your major and minor characters simultaneously, isn't it? To give everyone their due. Make everyone equally irritating. <laughs> <laughs> and I do, I think, and again, I understand it totally, that edit is something that editors worry about. And there's a need to make everything a little bit tidy. Um, and I think there are lots of books that I really love, um, like Anita Brickner, I'm a huge fan of. And there are some things that I think, how would she, you know, today? Or, um, oh my God, just read um, A Wreath for the Enemy by Pamela Frankow. Oh, wow. What's that like? It's one of the best books I've read this year. It's fully, fully mad. It's this really like fragmented story. And it's, it is like, it's the weird cousin of Bonjour Tristesse. It's got sort of big, um, I think I have described it before as um, I captured the castle, but with big, we have always lived in the castle energy. Again, it's what you were saying about that moral ambiguity. You start with people who have a very pure black and white idea of goodness and of what the world is and about how that is challenged and softened. But it's it's a book I will never forget, but... I can just imagine, you know, now writing a synopsis and people going, um... Yeah, I think that two things from that. First of all, likability and is that important or not in a character? But that that preoccupied me when I was writing You People. But also, as you're saying, the someone who makes moral choices, somebody who plays God, better to step in and give it a shot um, rather than to remain inactive or not try is what the character, the main character, um, well, the main object of interest in you people is doing. So he's inter interfering, some might say, or intervening um, responsibly in other people's lives. Um, and whether that's right or wrong, and whether or not, whether, whether you know, it comes from an honourable place and whether that matters or not, whether intention is even important. That was important. That was interesting to me. So all of those different avenues of the moral sort of landscape were ones that I think I had to explore in writing the book and the hubris when it comes to sort of making, when a character makes moral choices in a book, you know, and maybe they'll come tumbling down. And is that all right? It's better than being kind of um, paralysed or that there's that quote by Kierkegaard where he says, you know, I feel, I feel like the chess piece that the opponent where the opponent has said 
it's a wrong move. And he talks about being active and being altruistic, that sometimes you can feel like that. And is it better to make a mistake and just make your own moral blunders? That's all quite interesting to me in the fictive world. And it, you know, it really, really comes across in you people. And it's so fascinating. And I guess I was thinking about Nia's understandable sort of semi-obsession with you know, motives and why and where and how and about how I think she is a really great example of a, I don't know if you, you know, call her a, a heroine or, or a protagonist or, but that you, I think she obviously makes lots of not great choices and it's hard to call them bad choices because I think, you know, you never make a bad choice consciously, do you? You do what feels right in the moment, but that you never stop or I felt like I never really fully stopped being on her side even when I was sometimes a little bit shocked or uh, you know and I got very anxious for her yeah I think I had to dispense with that idea of likability but it's that reaching across and wanting to be with that character or understand them or travel with them through the book that's important isn't it when you enter a book yes that's why the book you people is written by from two points of view, because they both approach the object of fascination in different ways. Um, Tuli, the sort of godfather Robin Hood style character at the centre of the book, oh. is approached in two different ways. Um, the chapters alternate so that you get two different slants on him and his quote unquote goodness. Oh. Is he good or not is a question that you're constantly sort of tussling with. Maybe you might have a different answer to that than another reader. I guess... On some level, Nia, wants, Nia doesn't know if she's attracted to Tuli or if she wants to be him. Yeah. Does she want to walk in his shoes and do what he's doing, make those decisions, have power over different people's lives, but ultimately do what she calls spreading sunlight instead of darkness? Um, that desire to take action again. So it's important that she and Sean, who's the Sri Lankan cook who's come over from the horrors of the Sri Lankan war and who has torture and PTSD in his family and PTSD and who's enduring a family separation where he's trying to find his wife and child, that he also is somebody that hopefully the reader can feel is someone that you can empathise with and engage with and identify with. Because as the book unfolds, there's a kind of yeah. thrillerish thrust that gets faster and faster so that you're trying to kind of keep up with what all of the choices he's making. I don't want to tell you what your book's about, but with Nia, I think I found that with her, I felt very connected to her because we had like the luxury of the same curiosity. And Sean, it's, his story is just so much about that anxiety of survival, that his circumstances were so much more desperate and they are so moving. There could be a very different book where it's, you know, it is his his story and it's sort of unremittingly painful and you need that room to to share part of the reading journey with someone who's in the story who's exploring as you are yeah you're right and in that way just like uh the story of Gatsby Gatsby's this object of fascination and he's accessed through somebody outside um his world who's trying to understand yeah. him and he's trying to do that with Tuli in a way and it brings hopefully a lightness to the documenting of what she sees she's learning everything for the first time she she wonders why everyone seems to be in love with Tuli what he's got what's this magnetism that means that everybody who meets him falls for him and 
I, I, I quite like that as a way of trying to understand a character. At one point, I wondered whether I should go into Chuli's head and instantly destroyed the book. Oh, that's very really interesting that you had to experience him in that kind of external right. way. There's a bit that I really love where, because where Sean's just, I guess he's been evicted, maybe he can't pay his rent, and Chuli stops at a hotel. And Nia's in the car and they've, they've gone out for a drive. And she says something about how, like, the ease at which he disrupts people's lives or something. That he knows he can just turn up anywhere and immediately be accepted and, and, and get what he needs to do. Because of his charisma and because of his, the, the rightness of his mission, I suppose. Yeah, and that's definitely what she's attracted to when she's in the car with him at that moment. She's left in the car and she's watching the sort of this sort of tableau of London outside. Somebody's getting their nails done in a in a glass box. Somebody else is sort of walking past her on the street. She's got all this sort of plurality of living going on, and um and she sees Tuli go into a hotel where there's a guy who's working on the door. It's very late at night. It's almost midnight, and he's got his daughter there. And she's thinking, how bad can it be if you're working at that time with your daughter with you? And is just amazed at how Tuli can just sort of saunter in in his sort of floor-length leathers. <laughs> Doing that a little bit is, um, is Neo in the Matrix with his <laughs> amazing coat. <laughs> I keep thinking about that amazing coat too. I think there was a, probably a lot of coveting of that amazing coat as I was writing it. <laughs> um, because I've, I've been, at the moment I've been trying to um, envisage it as, as something that might work for screen. It's in the early phases of being developed for a screen treatment um oh, and so I've been thinking about which elements remain with you after you've written a book often when you've finished a book you don't want to go back there too much but you've got a set of photographs in your head from the book and it's interesting you mentioned that scene of them in the car going through London at night and those pools of light I, guess. I think that's what I love so much that you describe so well and this idea that London is almost always a little wet and slick and a little foggy and everything's either kind of you know muted or the neon sort of double down and everything's kind of everything is you know shimmering and slippery and and not as it seems and even the you know the most sordid sort of sad streets are made glamorous by light like I really I miss it a lot because you know having moved to Kent I used to live in Greenwich and I remember you know taxis and sort of you know going through through Peckham and seeing everything kind of glowing there's there's so much kind of life going on it's sort of it's a world away from Mayfair but it glows the same yeah that um that distribution of light I think often when I was writing the book I'd have to pick and choose the metaphors or the imagery for fear of spiraling into a surfeit of descriptions of the light were there any pet phrases that when you were going through edits and things you were like oh I I like using that in the script don't I yeah that happened to me a lot actually I remember with my first book there was a there were just too many images and some I would just sit looking at all of the cuts and think does it work or doesn't it um and I, I do that I think I've done that with every book certainly with you people I'll just sit there for ages and think an attempt at a simile or a metaphor or any kind of um, Im- image that is, you know, el- elusive is very embarrassing if it goes wrong. And yet if it goes right, it's thrilling, sort of majestic. You're, you're a genius. It's it's never been done before. So you believe, you hope, you know, whereas if, think... if, you, if it goes wrong, it's so embarrassing when you say it was as though or 
it felt like or it's such a risk to use that sort of precursor to something isn't it but then but nothing think... ventured, nothing gained. You're back to the chess piece, exactly. You know, you're skin in the game. And if it's like, you know, the 10th or 100th one that really, really sings, then all of the slightly awkward ones are worth it. Um, I know you mentioned a far fry for... My God, why can't I talk today? I'm not going to be this bad. Just really yeah, want alliteration there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the... Um... It's about a McDonald's, a far fry from Kensington. Far cry from Kensington. But I wanted to ask about other London books that you love. Probably the last one, we've already mentioned Sadie, but N.W. was a really good London book for me. I thought the way that it um, put London into the, the different kind of format, the different formatting of that book was an excellent way in which to access London from the deeply sort of hysterical and personal opening through to the footnotes. I'm not a fan of footnotes generally um, in the David Foster Wallace sense, but in NW, I thought they really worked. I thought that they really performed in, 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 the, in the way that footnotes are performative and can often be annoying, but they really did something excellent with the form. So I, I thought that was a brilliant London novel, which is the, you mentioned Anita Bruckner, which is, is it, Look at me. Is that set in London? Yeah, I feel like she's always in those sort of Bloomsbury mansion blocks. Yeah. But I'm... It feels like she's in that square mile, doesn't it? I'm a look at me super fan. And actually my um, novel, Insatiable, very much took that as the starting text. But I was so obsessed with this idea of um, Fanny and Nick and Alex and as a being one, infiltrating two. And I, when I, because I read Look at Me as a teenager, and it was one of those books that really, I was like, this is for me, and it kind of knocked the breath from me. And then I think um, it was on backlisted, and I reread it, and I felt exactly the same. I imagine Brickner turns up quite a bit on that podcast. Well, I think that's it. That she's always mentioned, and then you know they did the the Look at Me episode, at, you know, on the dedicated, you know, for once because um, they kept threatening it. But yeah, all I could think about was. I feel like Francis and Nick and Alex, there's definitely an energy there and I'm surprised that they're not having sex and what would happen if they did? <laughs> yeah, so did your book imagine what would happen if they had sex? I'm immediately running yeah, out I mean, to buy it if that's the case. Um, but it's in case, you know, the estate of Anita Bruckner is listening and anxious. It's very abstract, but it is the idea of a... A woman who is young and bored and, and rudderless. And in the way that in Look At Me, Frances has a sort of unspoken past, doesn't she? That, you know, she's not exactly a, a timid virgin. She's been, there's been a disappointment or a scandal or something odd that you never quite get to the bottom of that's like murky in her past. And Violet, my heroine, has broken up an engagement and sort of finds herself entirely alone. And she sort of purposefully made herself alone and deliberately isolated herself from her friends and family. Um, because I do think that Anita Bruckner is very, very funny and very, very dry. I don't know that I'm as dry as she is, but I've put lots of jokes in it. It's quite short, isn't it, as I recall? Um, look at me. It is. So much into it. I'd, I'd love closure on that, but even without overt closure, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, hopefully it'll give you something. I also recently reread A Friend from England, which is... I believe she's sort of almost taken up by the parents of a school friend and they're newly wealthy. And there are lots of really just great descriptions of sort of overheated interiors and the friends made a, a disappointing marriage. But I love that the claustrophobia 
of Bruckner's like excessively comfortable London and that you know being going into a room being hit with a wall of dry heat and that sense of like oh you can smell slightly stale biscuits no matter how much the wealth is attempting to disguise that yeah again it's public and private which is an endless source of fascination for me but also it's very voyeuristic and that idea of something being a secret is often prevalent isn't it with her stuff but they're quite small secrets they're not overt family it's not as you say it can be a murky it can be quite murky on the sort of defining family event that or, or, or events that might have taken place in the shaping of a character but voyeurism as to what do we hide anything that we hide is likely to be interesting isn't it something that we don't want someone else to know the definition of a secret something that i don't want somebody else to know um, you instantly want to find out what it is. It's like saying, don't think of monkeys. You know, <laughs> once you say this is hidden or this, somebody wants to hide this from the outside world, then you instantly want to sort of sc- sc- scur- scurry down and sort of pour at it. It's why we read, isn't it? Because everything's a secret. And I think those are the books I love when a secret is so closely guarded by someone that maybe they they don't even know or they want to know. They've sort of shoved something away and they're learning something about themselves and deciding whether they want to live with that or not. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I just uh, read a book that I loved, actually, that was uh, Mayflies by Andrew Andrew O'Hagan. Oh, I'd really like to read that. It's really, it's got this incredible energy in it and it starts with a group of friends who are... I mean, O'Hagan has said it's his most personal book yet, so it's safe to imagine that it's got some basis in reality. A group of friends who are 18 and obsessed with the Manchester music scene, they go there and experience all of culture through film, music, lyric, rather than through the canon of literary fiction or what we're told that sort of a person of letters might need in order to have any philosophical observations on the world or in order to have any writerly thoughts and they're sort of working class and Scottish and they're in Manchester and it's the most that's the first half of the book and the second half is when sort of three decades plus onwards when they now that we're all grown up is the fear what's going to happen now um and in that book when I was reading it I was thinking about that, you know, how we might embroider history or kind of streamline it or distill it or take the best secrets. But there are always going to be some secrets that don't make it in, aren't there? Because you can't always write everything. So I sort of wanted to immediately go to Andrew O'Hagan and say, can you tell me everything you left out of the book? (laughs) Rather than assuming that everything goes in. Yeah. What's left? I always want the DVD extra. (laughs) I honestly think that's the greatest compliment that anyone can pay a writer is to say I feel like there is so much beneath the surface and I want more I need a sequel I need something yeah or I want to know what was the thing you couldn't touch because it was too hot or you might muted it and refashioned it and done something elegant with it but what is that thing I'm quite interested in facts and real beginnings for books, I guess, because that's how I work myself. So I used to be a documentary maker and I kind of always want to start with some kind of 
felt experience and then mess around with it a bit, which isn't particularly respectful. But you feel okay if you do that with your own life and then if you invent a lot, you suddenly that's you're in the you know, the kind of palace of fiction then, aren't you, where you can write something that's totally different from how it began with those facts. Nikita, I could honestly go on for hours and hours and hours and hours. I can't thank you enough. I have loved this conversation. You have been such a joy to talk to and I get to go away and read so many exciting things now. No, that was brilliant. Huge thanks to Nikita. You People is published by Viking and out now. It's a vivid, insightful, energetic and uncomfortable book, a real clarion call for empathy and a moving, confronting examination of human rights, what we let ourselves ignore and what changes when we start to really see and look. I strongly recommend it. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your Book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at YBooked. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review. It's the best way to help new listeners to find the podcast. Find a list of all the books mentioned by Nikita on acast.com slash booked. Finally, I leave you with this from Eve Babbitts. Writers all had drinking problems in the 20th century. And once she got the $1,080 cheque, she was obviously a writer. And it was obviously the 20th century, so of course she had a drinking problem. See you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.